Welcome to the Holiday Friday edition of Unexpected Points. I have a review of 49ers Titans. Jimmy G is on the agenda. The haters are out there swarming. I'm going to have to defend them on this one. And I'm also going to talk about the one topic that's coming up a lot, MVP talk, but specifically non-quarterback MVPs. I'm going to go through an analysis that I'm going to publish next week that talks about trying to put a real point value on non-quarterbacks to be able to compare Cooper Cup to Jonathan Taylor. And I'm also going to get into the best bets for the rest of week 16 from myself and from Ben Brown. Let's get to it. Hope you enjoyed the game last night. It was looking pretty bleak early, especially for the Titans and their offense. And then things turned around quite a bit. It ended up being a pretty good game here. So the agenda here, and I've talked about this before, is I'm going to go through my adjusted scores being a big thing when I talk about for the game review. I mean, I'm going to go through, you know, things that happened, grading, everything else that goes through there. But then we're also talking about what happened versus what should have happened in this game based upon how the teams actually played here. So the the line going into this one, 49ers, Tennessee, the line going into this one was 49ers by three and a half is where it was going to close. Despite the fact that A.J. Brown was back, Julio Jones is back, although Julio Jones is kind of just uh, doing old guy cardio out there now. He's not really uh, very involved in the in the game plan, it seems, despite the fact that he was averaging about 85, 90 yards a game last year. He's gone to, I think, f- under 40 this season. So despite that, it was still three and a half for the 49ers on the road in Tennessee. So final score, 2017 Tennessee. And if you look at my adjusted numbers, I actually have San Francisco being three or four points better in this game. So why is that? Well, let's look at some traditional metrics first just to get an idea of the relative success of these two teams. Again, Tennessee struggled mightily to move the ball in the first half in particular, and really the entire game outside of some big third down conversions. I mean, if you just look at yards per play, really simple statistic. Uh, the 49ers averaged 6.7 yards per play and the Titans only averaged 4.8 yards per play. So that's a pretty huge difference there. So then what made the difference in this game as far as the actual score? Well, third down conversions were the key in this one. And I like to separate what goes on on third down conversions because sometimes you can have a game, half a season, even a whole season where you have really elevated or low third down conversions. Some of it is sustainable for guys like Patrick Mahomes and maybe Josh Allen's another guy where it's pretty sustainable for him to perform well in those circumstances. But for a lot of guys, it's just up or down for a lot of quarterbacks. And this is mostly passing we're talking about, right? Uh, Especially longer third downs. You rarely, rarely run on longer third downs. Uh, It's not that sustainable for a lot of people. So the Titans were 9 of 16 on third down. So over 50%. It's a strong number. But if you dig into the actual third downs that they converted, 
three of the top 10 most impactful plays by expected points added. And again, expected points added is a measure that looks at every single play, figures out how much you expect the offense to score on that play, and then recalculates based upon the new down distance field position after the play. And then you can figure out on particular plays how valuable those plays are. This will also come into my discussion about non-quarterback MVPs later. So Taniel averaged one point added, one expected points added per play on third and fourth downs. They converted a third and 23. That was when they had a free play-ish sort of thing, and he just threw up a, a jump ball to A.J. Brown, who boxed out the defender. They converted a third and 15, and they also converted a third and 11. So those were hugely impactful types of plays that were going on there. And then on the flip side, this comes down to my motto when it comes to Jimmy G, which is, uh, you know, live by the G, die by the G. They were dying by the G a little bit in this game here because the two most impactful plays of the game altogether were Jimmy G interceptions. Costed them roughly, cost them a rough, roughly 11 expected points. And the reason that they were especially costly, not only, you know, one was in the end zone, so that's kind of obvious why it was costly, but they were especially costly because they were on down in distance situations um, and score differential situations where he, he didn't need to push things. And I think that's part of the problem, if you will, with why Jimmy has a lot of detractors, why he become, become, can be frustrating for coaches like Shanahan who want to grind out victories is because these two interceptions, one happened on first and 10, another happened, the other one happened on second and eight, and the 49ers were both up by, they were up by a touchdown in both of these circumstances. Um, so that's what made them particularly costly and probably frustrating for Shanahan. Now let's get into some of the narratives coming out of this game, see if I can uh, debunk or contextualize those. This will be the pile on Jimmy G game. Island games are, there's nothing better than island games for bringing out people's, all people's existing opinions. They're going to reinforce it based upon what happened in this one game versus what has been happening even the entire season up until that point. You can be proven right or wrong on a take by one game and then ignoring the other, you know, 15 games that have happened so far this year. So this is island game, Jimmy, and the thing that's weird about it is, again, it's those interceptions more than anything else. I mean, I don't think Jimmy gets a lot of credit for other plays that were made during this game because of the fact that there was so much run after catch. But Shanahan himself even explained this week that what Jimmy does is he's willing to throw into tight windows, which can cause ugly interceptions sometimes, um, which we saw here. It was a tight window, obviously, to Kittle. It was more like he floated it for Debo. But then, you know, Debo later on in the game had the – the biggest gain on the game where he had a huge run after catch later on, where it was kind of a little bit of a high pass too, a similar play to what Jimmy's second interception was, but he is firing it in there. He's firing it a little bit high because he's trying to throw it over the linebackers and throw it in there. So again, live by the G, die by the G here. Um, so I know you don't, you can't just say, oh, well, if he didn't have these two interceptions then, well, I mean, it would have been a pretty big difference because if he didn't have those two interceptions, he would have had something like, 13 expected points added in this game on his 39 plays. You know, you go ahead and do some quick math on that. That's about a third of a point per play, which would be an excellent, excellent, excellent game. But he had the interceptions here, which held him down. 
So, you know, everyone's coming after Jimmy in droves here. But I think this Jimmy Island game scenario is kind of similar to what happened to Matthew Stafford this year. With, on the flip side, we had the nerds, including myself, although I was doing it mostly for fun, just delighted over Stafford's struggles against the Titans in an Island game, um, against the Packers in a highly viewed late game on the weekend. Um we were, you know, giddy over the fact that he was suffering this season, but Stafford still is second in EPA per play this season behind only Aaron Rodgers. He didn't make the Pro Bowl this year. So I wonder how much of that was the underperformance on these Island games, which end up getting severely overweighted. Even people that are voting for the Pro Bowl, I mean, fans included in there, of course, but even the other contributors to the Pro Bowl voting, they're not necessarily watching every game or tracking everything or know that Stafford has been that good this season. I mean, it'd be hard to put him in over Rodgers or over Tom Brady, but Kyler Murray, I think, is a pretty compelling case. He should have been in there before Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray especially considering the time that Kyler has missed. So I think Jimmy's a similar thing here. He's still the second highest graded quarterback, according to our numbers, uh, since week eight. Now, he had a 63 grade this week, so not a great grade. But again, he's between Burrow and Justin Herbert. Between Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, his grading uh, since week eight. And even in this game, nine yards per attempt makes up for a lot. That's why it was a strong underlying overall game other than the interceptions. But again, interceptions are a big deal. And there's a randomness to interceptions. That's why they get downweighted a little bit in my adjusted scoring. That's why when you have a player like Jimmy who is having a turnover-worthy play about 4% of the time, which is a little bit on the high side this season, you still don't want to overreact to it. And I think there was a circumstance of overreaction probably hiding a bit at the end of the first half, and people are going to focus on that. Uh, specifically, the 49ers started off with the ball a little bit under two minutes about a minute and a half, on their own 10-yard line. They ran the ball with Debo Samuel, picked up seven yards. They got a delay of game call on the, on Tennessee for another five yards, which stopped the clock. And then at that point, they still kind of just decided to sit on it rather than try anything there. Now, according to my numbers, they had about half a point, expected points in there. So it wasn't a huge number that they gave away. It was somewhat similar to the end of the half sequence in the Super Bowl, other than the fact that in the Super Bowl, they ran the clock down really low. They had a long dump-off pass, and then they had a long pass, which would have gotten them points to George Kittle, but a somewhat questionable offensive pass interference was called on that one. So people are pointing back to that similarity. And part of the, I think it's kind of part of the overall critique I would have of Shanahan is conservatism in these moments. He plays like a boomer. He coaches like a boomer. He coaches like uh, Bruce Arian sometimes in these circumstances. And because Jimmy threw that interception earlier in the game, I also think he's highly, highly influenced by small samples of what have happened before and how that affects his play calling in some of these circumstances. But I don't think it's as big of a deal as people think. And if you point to the overall, the overarching theme of how much he was, quote-unquote, hiding Jimmy in this game, he wasn't. I mean, they passed the ball two-thirds of the time. They dropped back the pass two-thirds of the time, which is a high number over expectation for them in this game because they mostly had the lead and it's a very high number compared to what they do on a normal basis so clearly the strategy in this game was for Jimmy to be more involved but you got the two interceptions you got the loss uh I'm not writing off Jimmy though I'm not 
going to react like some people and say, oh, this is what proves you can't win with Jimmy Garoppolo. You can't win with Jimmy Garoppolo. Come on. They went to the Super Bowl. They were a single play away from getting it. This is a guy who, over the course of his time with the 49ers, they are 29, I believe, and 14 when he is the starting quarterback. In the regular season, if you include the playoffs in there, and then you get up above uh, you know, 30 and 15, 31 and 15. So you can clearly win with this guy. If you're winning two-thirds of your games with a quarterback, you can win. You can even win against high-end competition. Just because you're not an elite quarterback, he is definitely not, to me, in the can't-win bucket, and people are going to overreact and are just reinforcing their takes, trying to make sure their takes look good because they've been dying uh, on the hill of Jimmy G is not good the last several weeks when the 49ers have been surging and Jimmy G's been playing well. So they're going to, of course, hop on this opportunity to jump all over the island game and make it a little bit bigger deal than what it actually was. Okay, let's get on to the next part here, which we're going to do non-quarterback MVPs. I'm going to give you the analytics way, a real side-by-side comparison way to look at this by comparing points. But before we do that, let's talk about... Some sponsors here. 50% off an elite annual subscription. Do you want an elite annual annual subscription? That is the prime, prime, prime PFF subscription. You get everything there. You get all the betting content. You get all the dashboards. You get all the grading. You get all the props tool, um, which will show you the best bets for every single game on here. We have multiple bets. All this has been performing pretty well this season, too. I've been trailing a lot of it and been uh, very happy with it. 50% off that Elite subscription if you use code ELITEUP. That's Elite UP uh, for 50% off. You know, get it as a Christmas gift. Get it uh, to a loved one. You know, everything is there for uh, promo code ELITEUP. And let me see here. DraftKings. Let's talk about DraftKings, too. Tis the season of giving, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is giving you a Christmas present you won't want to re-gift. New customers can bet just $5 on any of four NFL teams playing on Christmas and win $150 in free bets if they're victorious. Why not win some green and put some extra jingle in your pocket? If the Sportsbook is not available in your state, DFS is there with huge cash prizes. A free shot at millions of dollars with their first deposit at DraftKings. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win a Christmas Day, to win on Christmas Day and win $150 in free bets if they're victorious. That's promo code PFF this Christmas at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, let's get into the non-quarterback. I'm going to call the NQ MVP, the non-quarterback most valuable player. Because let's face it, you can't be the most valuable player if you're not a quarterback. That's just the way it works. Um, I was having a back and forth with Adam Harstead, who some of you may follow on Twitter the other day about the definition of value. And he says, well, if you're not taking the word value very literally, then you could vote for another position. I don't believe that. I don't believe that you can, honestly. You can redefine the word value, but I don't think there's a credible explanation for the word value that can really get you to a running back pick unless you're galaxy braining it. So my point was that People have to galaxy brain their way into trying to recognize these non-quarterbacks in this award. That's why 
we should probably at least allow rank ordered voting on this so you can give some recognition to these other players. Um, but let's just talk about value amongst a non-quarterback. I think you could have a non-quarterback MVP would be a very interesting discussion here. And the two names that come up the most are Jonathan Taylor and Cooper Cup. Taylor, I believe, is third or fourth in the MVP odds right now. Actually, I can look it up. I believe he's 750 in MVP odds right now. Let me get it. Um, yeah, plus 750. He's third behind Rodgers is plus 125. Brady plus 200. Jonathan Taylor plus 750. Cooper Cup is 3,500. So he, between Taylor and Cup are Matthew Stafford, Patrick Mahomes, and Josh Allen. So Cup's getting hit by something that happens quite often. And I think it's a reason why wide receivers never won the award, despite the fact that we nerds know passing is more valuable and their contribution to passing is more valuable. NFL executives know because they pay wide receivers more money. Um, they know that they're more valuable. Many, much, much, much more draft capital is spent on wide receivers near the top of the draft. So again, another piece of evidence that front office people know that they're more valuable. But it's easier to make an MVP case because, again, we're not looking at real value here sometimes for these guys that are non-quarterbacks. It's easier to make an MVP case for a good running back with a struggling quarterback being valuable Whereas if a receiver is playing well, then his quarterback is normally playing well. So the potential MVP seasons that we've seen throughout the years for wide receivers, if you're thinking about Randy Moss in 2007, well, Tom Brady shattering every record then, and of course he won the MVP. If you go back even further, you know, great years that Jerry Rice had had, where I think he scored 20-something touchdowns in 16, in 14 games, that's a great season but again with Joe Montana playing so well it was going to take away from them so Cooper Cup has a similar circumstance here where Stafford's probably not getting enough love but he's getting but he's getting some love and that love is going to hedge enough against Cooper Cup's numbers despite what's happening so that's what's happening in the market but let's talk about how we can actually value these guys so if you want to look up articles that I've written on this I call it PFF plus minus so if you just Google PFF plus minus Kevin Cole, you'll probably find my articles on this. I've gone through using our advanced stats and other metrics that we track. I've gone through valuing on a point basis wide receivers, um, what they bring in the passing game, tackles for pass blocking, edge defenders for pass rushing, cornerbacks for pass coverage, and running backs for just their rushing portion of what they do, not the other elements of their play, just isolating these specific elements. So I don't want to get into too many details about the framework. I mean, for lack of better phraseology here, it's some serious nerd shit, okay? Uh, there's clustering and regression are the two main parts here, but I think I can explain the clustering a little bit. So the problem with plus minus frameworks for the NFL is they're very noisy, Players are not regularly substituting in and off the, the on and off the field, so you don't get rotations like you do in basketball or like you do in hockey, where you can really start to parse out how valuable particular players are on those things. So that's the thing. So if you look at a one a one player basis, if you just look at on off the field splits, you can get some pretty wild conclusions from that. You get players who clearly aren't that valuable, looking like they're extremely valuable when they're missing time. And you get players who are probably really, really valuable, 
but yet their teams have performed worse when they were on the field versus a short period of time when they were off the field. So what I do here is, rather than looking at these individual noisy samples, I group them together. So I use a bunch of advanced stats for this analysis. I mean, for instance, if we're talking about for running backs, I'll look at their, their run grades, their EPA per designed run, their success rate running the ball, their explosive runs, all of that sort of stuff. I bring all of this together, uh, the box defenders that they're going against. And what I do is I build a cluster of similar players. So you build clusters of anywhere from 20 to 50 similar players. And from there, you look at the clusters on-off numbers, and you get a much more robust sample than you do when you look at these individual players. Of course, if you're getting you know 20 times the amount of players, you're going to get much more stability in those samples. And then I do this over and over again, kind of remixing which stats I'm looking at, remixing the size of the clusters, remixing different things to get a bunch of different samples. And then I find how much on average per rushing play are groups of similar players worth in the past when they're off on off the field and then apply it to the current player. Same thing for receivers. As if I'm looking at routes run is the is the is the baseline metric and for routes run again same thing build together clusters of similar receivers based upon their a dot based upon their yards per reception based upon their yards per route run based upon their receiving grade and so on and so forth so with those two numbers which once you cluster all this together you can figure out an estimate but and then you make it even more stable by running some regressions on it but again i'm not going to get too much into the nerd shit um, you, can, you can get an estimate for on a per route or per rushing attempt basis how much this player is worth. And then you say, well, how many times did they rush the ball versus how many times did, how many routes have they run? And that's an estimate for, for how much these different players are worth. So that's the large nerd shit for how this comes together. Now let's talk about the results. So the results we have, I was a little dubious as to whether or not Cooper Cup was really having one of the greatest seasons ever, as people are talking about here. But in fact... His point total came out to 4.8 points per game, which is the highest of any receiver that we have in the database. And we've been tracking all these different stats since 2006. So that includes the Randy Moss 2007 season. Now, Randy Moss's 2007 is still the highest total season number that I have. But as we, you know, Coop's only, um, Cup's only played 14 games. So if he gets to 16 games, he's only a few points behind Randy Moss. So he only needs a few more points. He's averaging 4.8 points per game. So even within the 16-game framework, he doesn't need to get to that 17th game that he's going to have this year. Even within that 16 games, he's going to pass Randy Moss for the for the greatest season ever, according to this metric of points added. And it's not exactly like a high volume necessarily sort of thing either. He's really just doing it on an efficiency basis. It's very, very strong. 4.8. I know it sounds ridiculously high. If he was missing a game, you wouldn't move the betting line by 4.8 because prospectively, you can, you're not expecting him to put in another 4.8 going forward. He's been so, so good this season. You do expect some regression. So, But that's what he has done, and that's what we should be measuring for an MVP type of award is what you have done. So 4.8 points per game. So comparison, comparing that directly to what Jonathan Taylor's done on the ground. And most of our focus is what Jonathan Taylor has done as a running back, not as a receiver or a blocker or anything like that. So what Jonathan Taylor has done on the ground, his number comes out to 2.5 points per game, which is still substantial. I mean, this is, that's the sixth highest number in 
the database that I have going back to 2006. So nothing to sneeze at at all. And it's the type of number where it's not near cup, but cup is really on one of the highest levels, again, that we've seen since 2016. So if you compare Taylor to all other receivers who are not Cooper Cup, there are only two other receivers for 2021 who have a higher points added per, I mean, from running routes this season per game, higher than Jonathan Taylor is adding on the ground. And those two receivers are Devontae Adams, who's at three. So a little, so again, there's a huge gap. It goes all the way from 4.8 for Cup down to three for Devontae Adams. Uh, and then Justin Jefferson's 2.8, right? A, a little bit higher than Taylor. So again, Taylor's really, you know, doing it up here. And if you think about the, the best seasons ever, I think there's been an interesting debate about whether or not Jonathan Taylor's season this year is better than Derrick Henry's last year. I actually have Henry's being better last year. I know that uh, Taylor has been more efficient on a per carry basis this year. He's had a lot of longer runs, but... Uh, you know, Henry just has too much volume, so he's accumulating. So he was 3.1 points per uh, game on the ground. So if you think about that, Henry's 2020, 3.1 points per game. That would be second behind Cooper Cup amongst all receivers this year. These are really, really high seasons. Uh, greatest season ever, just, just for reference, Adrian Peterson, 3.7 points per game in 2012 when he actually did win the MVP award that season. So also, you know, I have, as part of this, I have somewhat independent confirmation. When I was uh, tweeting out some of these numbers, I heard from a friend of mine who works in an NFL front office analytics guy, and he was telling me that he thought it was pretty cool because his numbers for what they've been working on for a point value for players, he has cup at a little bit over four, as four points per and then Taylor at two points per. So pretty close. I have 4.8 and 2.5. So he also had it very, very close to this. So that shows you the cup does have a lot, a lot more value than Taylor. And again, these are numbers that were derived off of actually looking at when players are on and off the field, how their, how their offenses perform, similar players, how their offenses perform. So it's based on real world expected points added, point denominated numbers so we can compare across different players. Now, the question is, what's missing from this analysis? There's always a lot missing. Trust me, we know we're going to hear from football guys, maybe not in this particular analysis, but a lot of analysis, what's missing all the time? What's the context? What are we missing? So what doesn't it capture? Well, it's probably missing more for Taylor than it is for a cup as far as value outside of what's specifically being measured here, which is rushing value. So for Jonathan Taylor, it doesn't capture his receiving value. It doesn't capture his pass blocking value. And then for Cooper Cup, the primary thing it doesn't capture is his run blocking value. Now let's talk about Jonathan Taylor and his receiving. So he has 42 targets this year. He's run 230 routes. So he's been targeted 18% of the time. That's pretty good. It's not bad at all. Uh, 1.46 yards per route run. It's okay. It's 17th. There's efficiency on those routes, 17th out of 48 running backs who have had at least 25 targets this season. So he's going to get some juice out of that, I would say, but nowhere near getting cl- bridging the gap between 4.8 points per game and 2.5 points per game. Um, if you look at, for instance, to, to, to 
give you uh, context here. So, again, 1.46 yards per route run. Cooper Cup right now is averaging 3.15 yards per route run. And the second receiver, Debo Samuel, is 2.8. So it's a pretty big gap to even get down to second here. Um, Taylor, if you want to look at pass blocking, he has done a lot of pass blocking, but he's definitely done some, and he's pretty good. He's decent at it. We have a 55.9 grade for him on pass blocking, 33rd out of 42 running backs who qualify for having enough uh, pass blocking snaps. Again, okay, some contribution, I'm sure. Not necessarily better than a replacement running back in that circumstance. And if we look at Cooper Cup, what he's averaging, he has a 63.2 run blocking grade, which is 20th amongst 58 wide receivers that qualify for having enough run blocking snaps there. So altogether, there's not going to be a huge amount of difference either way. Taylor's going to give you a little something, though, on the routes, which may pump them up to more like three points versus 4.8 for Cup. But again, I don't think it's going to be nearly close enough to bridge the gap here. The other things that may not be part of the analysis, you could say, well, Jonathan Taylor affects the passing game by bringing players into the box more than they would normally and allows Carson Wentz to be successful because of that. And that wouldn't come up by Jonathan Taylor's individual numbers or routes run or this analysis that you're doing. Well, it's tough to say. You could give him a little bit of juice from that if you want to. Um, the one thing that I looked at to try to get a definitive idea of how much the running game could be helping Carson Wentz specifically this season was looking at his numbers with and without play action. I thought that would be a good indicator. And unfortunately, you don't get anything there. Carson Wentz is 11th amongst quarterbacks this season in his EPA per drop back on non-play action plays but he's 20th with play action. So he's actually worse relative to the rest of the NFL. So it's not definitive in any way, but there's no evidence that Taylor's dramatically helping the play action passing game there. He could be though, but there's no evidence that it's dramatic at least. So I think it's fair to not add too much because of that. And if we want to compare these guys to quarterbacks, so the top quarterbacks in the passing game right now are producing something like 10 ex- points per game, 10 expected points over what you, 10 points over what you would expect per game. And replacement level quarterback play is going to probably take you down to more like losing five expected points per game, uh, backup quarterback play. So for the entire passing plays that quarterbacks are involved in you could say it's around 15 epa per play again we're saying cup has almost five here so that's a pretty good contribution but it still leaves two-thirds of the value so most of that's going to go to the quarterback some's going to go to the run blockers and others other receivers who are out there and so on and so forth but i think it still gives the idea that with the 15 for the entire passing game even cup having the most historic season ever since 2016 at least i'm sorry since 2006 according to my numbers still probably is not contributing more than his quarterback, Matthew Stafford, this year, who, again, is probably more like 15 EPA for the entire passing game. Subtract Cup, you still have more than 10 left. And, you know, Stafford probably gets more than half of that. So that would put him above Cup for sure in my numbers. So, again, the non-quarterback MVP, according to the numbers, according to what I'm looking at here, would be pretty easily this season Cooper Cup. One last thing that I'll mention when it comes to great 
receiver seasons, which I think floated under the radar a bit, is if you look on a per-route basis, per-route basis, Devontae Adams last year was actually higher than Cooper Cup this year. Now, he missed time in games because of injuries. He missed full games because of injuries. But that Devontae Adams season last season, really under the radar for how awesome that he was uh, then, even compared to Cooper Cup getting a lot of hype this year. Okay, before we get to the best bets, let's hit our last sponsor of the day. That is Western and Southern. Want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast, whether it's football success or financial savvy. Winning starts with us asking questions. Would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Every submission earns you a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to 2500 coordinate your order from a restaurant near you, and have it delivered on February 13th, 2022. And don't forget to check out the Chris Collinsworth Podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that's westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching this on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right, let's get into the bester betters here. And I have a couple of big ones that my numbers likey very much. Um, Actually, the Saints are showing up first on here, but obviously that's off the board now with a... uh, a big, a big flop um, with Taysom Hill out, and someone named Ian Book, whoever the hell that is, is going to be starting. So we're not we're not doing that one. So first big bet here is Washington Football Team plus ten and a half at the Dallas Cowboys. Heineke is back. I have this being more like it should be seven and a half. Let's see if we can find something even better out here as far as the number is concerned. Um, no, nah, it looks like 10 and a half is about as good as you're going to get. Bet MGM, you can get plus 10 and a half. Points bet, you can get 10 and a half. There are lots of 10s out there, so this is probably a decent one to jump on since you're getting between the 10 and 10 and a half. And you know what's weird about some of these circumstances? I'm going to think about this a little bit more going forward is the fact that if you test positive for COVID and then you come back out of the COVID protocols, I believe the protocols say now that you have a 90-day window where you don't have to test. There's no possibility of testing positive again. Something to think about, maybe, for some of these teams and some of these quarterbacks. Like, we know that Taylor Heineke, he just came out, right? We know that he cannot test positive again for this game. Could Dak Prescott? Yeah, he could, I believe, right? I don't think he's tested positive so far this year. Check me on that if, I, if I'm wrong on that one. Uh, he's missed time because of injury. So uh, that's something to think about for a lot of these games. And especially these teams, we're talking about, again, a three-month window. So this extends beyond the whole entire rest of the season throughout the Super Bowl. If you're testing positive now, you're clear. You don't have to worry about missing a game again because of COVID uh, all the way through the Super Bowl for a lot of these guys. So, again, something to think about on some of these games. But anyway, Washington continues to be undervalued. And the Dallas team, they've been doing really well the Cowboys, but 
they're kind of moving down a little bit relative in my numbers because of the fact they're becoming more of a defensive dominated team versus an offensive dominated team and offense projects more stability more predictiveness than the defense does so well we'll see what happens in this game interesting matchup within the division um okay let me see my well my next game was was Tennessee plus three and a half but again that one's over so no juice there um next is Detroit the Detroit Lions plus five and a half at the Atlanta Falcons let me see if we can get a better number on that um oh yeah there's sixes all over the place okay well no there's not actually sorry the sixes are 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 minus 115 but I think that's okay. I think I, uh, th- that's not bad. Um, so if you want to take five and a half, there's five and a halfs available at plenty of places. Or you can get six minus 115 at FanDuel at least. Uh, might be a little bit better uh, way to play that one. So Detroit, we have the... I have Detroit as actually being a better team so far this year than the Falcons. The Falcons have been overperforming drastically what their internal numbers have been this season to be a decent team so you know golf is out so I think that's the real problem here right for for these for these numbers and I don't have too huge of a step down here at backup quarterback but if you didn't want to bet it I would I would understand um so this one's kind of like a more of a maybe than a definite for me uh for these for these numbers whereas opposed to Washington and um Tennessee were were, were definites on here Okay, so my last one here, well, I can't bet Baltimore since uh, since uh, Lamar is probably out. So the last one here is going to be the Pittsburgh Steelers plus eight and a half at Kansas City. You know, Kansas City is going to be down Tyreek Hill. And Travis Kelsey, eight and a half points. Seems a little too easy to me. Is this moved even further? No, you still got eight and a half everywhere. So, I mean, the Steelers aren't great. I, I don't like them generally. We're not becoming close to betting this if it weren't for the fact that Casey's passing game is down there. But no one has been able to prove anything there. And plus, if you have a semi-breakout, you could have some more guys who go down to COVID there. So I would just be playing that end of the equation more than anything else here with Pittsburgh. Uh, plus the eight and a half. And let me see. I'll see for you guys if we have anything from Ben Brown that I can relay that he has. Um, ben only really has one play that he wants to hype up this week, and that's the Falcons-Lions over 42 and a half. But again, without Goff, that'll be an interesting one to see if it happens. Assuming he doesn't play. I guess he could, he could test back in. So that's the other one for Ben Brown this week. All right, guys, I hope you appreciate this. Hope you appreciate the non-quarterback points discussion. I'm going to try to get that out onto the website next week since everyone's talking about Cooper Cup. They have to be in the discussion, in the discussion, in the discussion. Uh, Jonathan Taylor, in the discussion. So I'm going to put them in the discussion. PFF's going to put non-quarterbacks in the MVP discussion, but against each other, not against quarterbacks. Uh, rate view the pod. Otherwise, I'll be back at you with Ben Brown on Tuesday to review everything that happens this weekend. Take care and have a great holidays. Bye.